Charlie Forn is the author of 10 books, the most recent being a biography of Mordecai Richler. We're here to talk today about his participation in the Penguin Extraordinary Canadians series, a biography or take on Maurice Richard. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Thank you. The first quote in the book is from a Quebec writer, novelist, Hubert Aquin. And the quote is, you're either Maurice Richard or you're nobody. Aquin committed suicide. So perhaps you could bring those two elements together for us. Sure. I was so struck by the Aquin quote because he, he makes that comment in 1962, I think it is. Richard has just retired and is the most famous man in Quebec. Aquin's not criticizing Maurice Richard himself, but what he's criticizing is, is that Quebec as a, as a society, as a culture, has been reduced in the psychology of the rest of Canada to this one ferocious hockey player. That all of Quebec's artists, all of Quebec's cultural production, its identity, as far as most English Canadians are concerned, is just this one man. So he's saying that in despair. Now the irony of Aquin saying that then is that within 10 years, Richard's standing will have fallen because the first generation of the, what's now known as the Quiet Revolution or the new secular Quebec is the radical FLQ generation. And they are, aren't nearly as fond of Maurice Richard as their parents were. He's a, a, an emblem or is perceived to be an emblem of a retrograde, subservient, submissive kind of French Canadian. And they want pushing to being this new radical left modernist, modernized secular Quebec. So Aquin's comment, uh, at the time he made it, was accurate to the older Quebec, but it's very soon, ironically, or interestingly, that Maurice Richard himself is taken, swept up by these uh, changes, and he himself feels like a nobody. He says that in a, a Fifth Estate documentary, in so many words, made in 1975, where he says, people forgotten me, I don't even remember mm -hmm. who I am. What I was trying to do is set the tone for the book's exploration of the fluctuations of his iconic standing in Quebec, much of which occurs without even his full awareness. And then we get the quote is toward the end of the first chapter. Okay, here it is. Had Richard known about Akin's remark and met the author shortly before he took his life, he might have overcome his natural reticence enough to ask the novelist a question, one that might have soothed Akin's soul. What does it mean for if not Quebec, then for one French-Canadian, if Maurice Richard feels like a nobody too. The idea being, would Aquin somehow have been assuaged or comforted by the, the swiftness of the changes underway? In other words, this is a completely hypothetical, because Maurice Richard and Hubert Aquin yeah. just didn't move. Not in the same circles. No, yes. a couple of degrees <laughs> of separation. Yeah. But had it occurred, and they sat down, would Aquin, who was a tortured man, a brilliant but tortured man, who end up by killing himself. What do you felt better about his Quebec and his hopes for Quebec? If, if Richard had said, look, everything is in such upheaval that even I'm a nobody too. Even mm. I'm, I don't know my position. I'm not revered anymore. Exactly. Mm. Not in an old-fashioned way. So, so something is afoot and you should feel better about things because something is definitely underway. Now, by the time Akin uh, killed himself, of course, the FLQ, if you will, radical or physical force nationalism had been supplanted by electoral nationalism with the PQ and the emergence of the sovereign separatist government. And that in turn, uh, as far as the fate of Richard's iconic standing, 
that allowed him to be brought back into the fold. All of a sudden, he was being celebrated as, an, as a symbol or an emblem of nationalist Quebec. Even though he, he uh, eschewed any kind of affiliation with, with sovereigntists or any kind of political party, right? By and large, I explore how when he was a hockey player, he perhaps, if I could be so bold, mistakenly aligned himself with, the, with Maurice Duplessis and the Union Nationales. The two Maurices. The, 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 the two most famous yeah. Maurices, two most famous men in Quebec, Maurice Richard, Maurice Duplessis. Richard campaigned for Duplessis. But that aside, he was, by his own self-definition, not a political person and never voiced support for sovereignty or separatism, a separate, separate Quebec, was, I suspect his entire life, and I explore this in the book as well, a French-Canadian. He was locked into that definition, that self-definition. That's a self-definition that belongs to the first half of the 20th century. And it later came to have a sort of pejorative uh, connotation, but it wouldn't have for him. He was French and he was Canadian. It made sense. And he was proud. And he was proud. So the separatist movement, the sovereigntist movement, however much Richard may have been able to relate to some of his feelings of being put upon, he certainly did as a younger mm. man, and yeah. second classes, all that, yeah. he never voiced support, so much so that at his funeral, his family declined to have the fleur-de-lis draped over his casket mm. for fear that the then PQ government, Bouchard, would use it. The, the PQs were almost uh, embarrassed, just in a similar way to the way they were embarrassed perhaps by uh, Jean Chrétien's Petit Gare. Right, exactly, yes. I suggest that some, between 1960 and say 1976, or so between the, what's now considered you know, ground zero for the Quiet Revolution, which is the election of the Liberals in 1960, and the election of René Lebec in 76, that in that brief period, the initial force of Quebec nationalism had been these younger people, radical, for whom Maurice Richard would have been a petit gars, would have indeed have been a petit gars, uh, one of the small people in that rather regrettable term that was used. And I have René Lévesque, uh, there's a chapter heading of another one of the chapters saying, we are not a small people, we are something of a great people. They were well aware that that was the designation for the uh, working class or f regular folk in Quebec. So you have that period, but then by the mid-70s, a new generation of Quebec nationalists had emerged they weren't, first of all, from the working class, so they didn't have that kind of edge that the FLQ kids do. What they have instead is they're, they're technocrats and they're artists and they're middle-class kids, and they're going to make this new Quebec, and they're going to make use of Ottawa's money, and they're going to make use... In other words, they're smarter and they're more savvy. So for them, the rocket isn't a, an unfortunate symbol of, of the dark past. It can be a convenient symbol of the force of Quebec's the passion, yeah. the passion, exactly. Yeah. So they use him differently, and I explore that as well. That all of a sudden he's appearing in folk songs and plays for the theater. Again, domains that he wouldn't have known anything about, or certainly wouldn't have cared about. He would have been interested that people were using him. He already had a you know a hockey rink named after him in 1976 when he was all of in his mid 50s. So people were making use of his stature and his emblematic significance almost from the get-go, and what I found arresting was that here was a fairly humble man who was very good at hockey and perhaps not so good at a lot of other things, and he was watching as his image was being kicked around a little bit. That's a great narrative, you know, it's a great kind of conflict in a way between the, the private person. It doesn't happen very often in sports, but when it happens, it's, it's like that with Jackie Robinson or Muhammad Ali, where yeah. the athletes suddenly, oh, you know, all of a sudden what I'm doing, which is just what I do, Suddenly, it's, it's taken on this great cultural, even political significance. How did that happen? 
And some athletes, like, like Ali, they seize it and they use it. They say, fine, I'm a symbol, fine, watch me. Watch me use it. Watch me use it. Others like Maurice Richard were quite uncomfortable with the whole thing. Yeah, let's get to that. His life is so tied up with the sport that he couldn't, for example, cooperate with Ted Lindsay, who was trying to organize hockey players into a union so they could all get more money. He was the enemy, and Maurice didn't want anything to do with that because of that. That's right. Couldn't, couldn't see past his tribal affiliations, his tribal or, if you will, heart-driven identity to any kind of business interests. Ted Lindsay, right. I thought that was fascinating that Richard, who complained about the poor pay, he was exploited, he really, was exploited, wasn't he? Absolutely, he was exploited because he, you know, the, the Habs, the Montreal Canadiens were on the verge of folding during World War II. Tenants had fallen off since Howard Marins died and all that. And they were on the verge of folding and they needed a, a French Canadian superstar because it was the team for the French city. There was a team called the Maroons for the And along comes this kid, he's just perfect. He's handsome in that dark way, he's powerful, he's dynamic. They, the, the nickname, the Rocket, comes in very quickly. It's, Significant that happens during World War II, of course. You know, it's an era of rockets. He's mute. He's a very quiet <laughs> man, so there's no problem with him saying things. He's a perfect symbol, and, and then right away the stands are filled. They expand the forum. They add more seats because people want to see the rocket. He doesn't benefit from this financially. He, matter of fact, he engages in some very modest sort of work stoppage. He's totally locked down. They, they shut him down. So by the 1950s, yes, Ted Lindsay and a couple of players, weren't many, were saying, no, you know, we, should, we, we deserve better. We are generating the income. But Richard could not see past the fact that this was terrible Ted Lindsay. He was the enemy. And yeah. they, don't forget, there were six teams. They play each other 14 times a year. You got a hate on for someone, and yeah. you, it just grew and grew and grew. Perhaps, again, this early old-style francophone respect for authority mm -hmm. Not necessarily respect for the Anglos, but maybe knowing his place or something. Yeah, I think he carried that around in his heart. You know, I think I grew up with working class French Canadians, mm. my mother's side, and they did have that slight inferiority complex. And then they were all Catholic and they reared on deference. And no wonder that would be an embarrassment to the new generation of better educated, more ambitious, more uh, secular people. That's right, they would, because he reminded them of their moms and dads. Right. And for a while that was embarrassing, then it stopped being embarrassing. But you're right, there were, a lot went into his character. I, though he himself, I wouldn't have defined him as a complex man, but there was a lot of complexity that had gone in, into making him who he was as an athlete and as an individual. And as an athlete, it was an extraordinarily potent combination. As an individual, it wasn't quite so successful because he didn't stand up for himself at the right times. And then, of course, he had this, to be frank, kind of hapless post-career career. He couldn't sort out who he wanted to be. He was no Jean Beliveau. He certainly was not. He wasn't about to get asked to become governor general or anything like that. Nor was he kind of dashing young matinee idol Guy Lafleur. He, be he quickly became this sort of grumpy, sour man who uh, you know, wouldn't drink Molson's beer because he felt hard done by the owners of the franchise and all that stuff. He wouldn't bring it into his pub, would he? We wouldn't. All these decisions... I understand them again because I, I think I, I think I, ha I understood I came to understand a little bit about that kind of pride, that kind of self-definition, which is endemic or typical of a man of his generation, a working-class man of his generation. But it didn't make it easier to write about it because it wasn't. I don't really want to use the word successful, but you would have wished better for such a, an extraordinary figure. Not so un uncommon, of course. You know, there are lots of stories about great athletes whose careers are 
anticlimactic in a big way. I'm speaking with Charlie Forn, who is the author of Maurice Richard, part of the Extraordinary Canadians series that Penguins put out. Uh, let's, if we could, bring the conversation up to today. One of the observations I have of, of your life of Richard is, or what struck me was how violent he was. That's such an important conversation yes, today. Is. Sure is. I wonder the riots were caused by the fact that he was suspended by Colin Campbell. By Colin Campbell, by Clarence Campbell. His Clarence Campbell, his that's father. right, sorry. Yeah, that's right. Oh, it's, it is the father. I'm pretty, I'm pretty oh. sure it is the father. Well, that's interesting. So that really does tie it together, doesn't it? But you, the way you describe it, it's the, this Boston player kind of clips him on the side of the head and he goes up and, and sees that there's blood there and, and sees red and exactly. goes after him. And, and you say that he smashes him over the top of the head with his stick. Unhelmeted head. And, and he does it twice. And then when the referee restrains him, he clocks the referee. He goes crazy. He loses it. He would, he would certainly have been tried for assault. And in fact, the Boston police attempted to, to arrest him after that game. You're, you're quite right. There are so many resonances for today. Uh, we perceive hockey to have reached some level, a new level of violence. It has not. Matter of fact, I grew up in the 70s of the Broad Street Bullies. Yes. It's yes. so psychotic. Yes. There was more fighting than there was hockey. There and was, you know it, what? There was a lot of fun watching, too. It, it was fun. It was fun. And then if you go back to the 40s and 50s, to Richard's era, there was tremendous amounts of physical and psychological intimidation at play. Yeah. These guys had returned from the war, a lot of them. They, were, they needled each other, they, they used Racism. taunts, racial, racial yeah. taunts. Richard was easy to wind up. I mean, they knew, if you think about it, you know, you're playing him 14 times a year, where do you want Richard to be? You want him to be in the penalty box or ejected? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you go after him, you start in on him. Or injured. And, or injured, and yeah. he's gettable because he's got a short fuse. He's a fiery guy, he's passionate, but he, you know, he doesn't know when to pull back. And when he loses it, he loses it big. So this is what happened, it happened repeatedly. And I think it is important to note two things about that. One, that it was part of his, his character and you can't separate it out because that kind of intensity and my wife who's a American always says, you know, why do they fight so much? I said, well, you have to be going on, I, I should put you on skates at 25 miles an hour going down a, a, a rink and there's a guy with a stick who's about to try and drive your head into the boards. Like it arouses <laughs> extremely strong reaction. Primitive, <laughs> primal. Exactly. Yeah, and it, yeah. I'm not saying it, but there's no other sport. Uh, lot, you know, foot, American football is legislative violence. If you will, each and every play, it's about contact. So, so you don't need to drive the guy and fight him because you're just going to get hit, hit him the next play. There's no sport where, where there's such high risk at high speed, I think. And that's been ever thus. Um, so the, that's the first quality. That Richard's violence can't be separated from his greatness as a player. The second thing is simply that this was simulated warfare and it had tribal dimensions, it had linguistic dimensions to it. So it was, it was a rich, if you will, arena of drama. And it was real. I think that's the, the big thing. You look at all this fabricated violence with the roller derby. Or even the, the idea of the enforcer. You know, guys had to do their own fights back then. Yeah. The superstars did their, fought their own fights. 
And I tried to portray as well another dimension of the of sporting experience, which was that back then it was a little more intimate. There was no glass around the boards, which is strange to think about. The puck whizzes around the way it does now. If you see pictures, guys are like, you know, men are leaning on the boards with their fedora hats and smoking, or, you know, and, and, and these players are right there. So it was intimate, and I believe that contributed to the intensity and probably to the violence of it. And you heard what they said, you saw the expressions on their faces. Again, they're, they're not wearing helmets or masks or visors. It was real. Real is a good word for it. And people loved it. They were warriors. I remember a scene, it's not in my book, but there's this famous scene where Ted Lindsay was a truculent guy, very gifted player. One of the, t- one of the guys that actually could take Maurice Richard. Yeah, because he, was, he, was, he was a scrapper. Yeah. In fact, this is another point that you bring up. that Golden gloves. Golden gloves. He, Boxer, one of the yeah. first things he was told to do was go and learn how to box. That's right. And as, and as he explained his, his theory of boxing to somebody, he said, well, you just hit him first. That's how you win fights. <laughs> so there was no and delay, hard. No delay, no like, wait and see what he's going to do. He just clocked the guy. Terrible Ted Lindsay. There's this famous moment where he's at Maple Leaf Gardens and, and they despise him. They, you know, they want to tear him from limb to limb. And he stands at center ice. And this is after World War II. And he raises his stick and he goes, and then he turns and he goes, and he, he simulates executing the crowd using his, his stick as a, as a rifle. Now, that's really straightforward to me. That's like saying, you know, you want war, we got war. And I'll see you next week. And that's how hockey was back then. So it was, it was not for the faint of heart. Well, let's move then from that confrontation to another confrontation between Campbell and Montreal, mm-hmm. really. Because Campbell suspends Richard yep. for the few games that are left in the season. Plus the playoffs. And that's the key. It's the playoffs. Yeah. That's 1955. And that causes... The Richard riot, which in turn, Nigel, is credited as being the, if you will, the birthplace or ground zero for populist Quebec nationalism. It's a slightly glib narrative, but there's no question that, as I report in the book, within hours of the Richard riot, you have both songwriters penning popular versions of the event, casting him as the hero, and you have someone like André Laurendeau and Le Duvoir comparing the suspension of Maurice Richard to the execution of Louis Riel, making hay right away and seeing it as, and declaring it an awakening that this, to be honest, kind of shambling, you know, I mean, riots are riots. They, they don't have heads, right? They don't have, they rarely have agendas for very long. So you know, the fans pour out of the forum after the game is suspended because a smoke bomb is thrown at Clarence Campbell who's sitting there. They pour out, and most folks go home, but few carry on down St. Catherine Street. And as the night goes on, the police make the usual mistakes of driving in one way and so forth. And then eventually the people peel off, and then it's just young guys out for a little bit of mayhem. And, and all of a sudden, you know, jewelry stores are being robbed and so forth. So uh, you can really overstate this as, a, as some sort of a you know, French Revolution-like moment. Yeah. But nevertheless, that was more the way it was used, and that's a theme in his life, too, the way... He exactly. was used by, uh, by others to... For his actions, or his actions, people say, hey, I can, I can do something with that. I, you know, right back from the beginning of his career, when this black-eyed guy would go barreling down yeah. the ice, people say, yeah, we can sell tickets with that, and better to present him as a flying Frenchman. He's a flying Frenchman. You know. So the Richard Ride is just, in a sense, the most famous example of his on-ice actions engendering off-ice change or reaction. Significantly, I think, the next day he's asked to go on radio and TV to, to calm the city. There was actually talk of martial law, which 
eerily echoing something that <laughs> happens 50 Down the years. road, yeah. yes. And he does, and he goes on. He's quite eloquent in both languages. He had learned English, and he didn't speak English in Italy. And this was not something he wanted to do. But there, there you have it. He's, he's on, he's telling people, he's, his people, if you will, stay home. It's okay. We'll be back, I'll be back next year. That's right, yeah. yeah. And we'll win next year. And he does. And not only that, yeah. and not only that but he begins the beginning of five Stanley Cups in a row. Still unmatched. So it is, a, it is an extraordinary narrative. It makes a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. stuff. And, and it is true. As, as for this idea that Quebec nationalism was born that night, if it wasn't, then people made sure they got some good spin out of it. Exactly. And I like the way that you refer to Campbell almost oh, as, as, yeah. as if he's the British in India. Yes. <laughs> well, I, the white Rhodesian element of Westmount uh, yeah. was very real. The bitterness that people felt it was really deep in for you know Ray Levesque, for example, really had a thing about Westmount. And he was right. They did lord it they lived on the hill. Yeah. And they lived in splendid isolation. And they were enormously wealthy, as you know. There was at one point some staggering percentage of Canada's wealth was concentrated in that neighborhood due to natural, you know, mineral logging and shipping and that stuff. And Campbell everything about him, he was perfect. White haired, Anglo, had been in the army. You know, did not speak a word of French, felt under no... He was headquartered in, in, in Montreal, yeah. headquartered in the Sun, Sun Life building, building. The, one time the biggest building in the colonial empire, the colonies. But he never felt the need, even though he was rewarding cup after cup to the Habs, right there in Montreal, he never felt any need to acquire a few words of French, to hand it to Maurice Richard, or Butch Bouchard, or Jean Beliveau, or any of those French guys. Mm -hmm. He would just say, you speak in English. So he was perfect. He could be cast in yeah. his drama as le patron, that figure, in very, the anglophone, unilingual anglophone. Arrogant. Arrogant, disinterested in the people in his employ or in his community. Immovable. Um, immovable and serving the secret interests of the either Anglo-Canada or the United States, preferably Anglo-Canada, because French Quebecers have always had a fondness for America, so they they preferred to think of it as being, as being English Canada. That's whose interest he was serving. The dynamics were perfect, and Richard had already been slapped down by Campbell the year a couple of years before when he tried to write a column. Someone goes through the phone. Mm -hmm. A column where he'd begun criticizing Campbell for, in his view, disfavoring French players, giving them bigger fines, you know, two standards for who got penalties, even assists in scoring championships. Because it meant they wouldn't get the bonuses. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. French Canadian players were pretty sure that if Gordy Howe went within 15 feet of a puck, he got an assist. <laughs> Didn't happen for the French guys. And yeah. Campbell had really humiliated Richard. He made him stop the column. He made him post a $1,000 bond against future fines. It was a bit, he humiliated, he grounded in. Come. And he took it. He did. He did. He felt, and again, maybe to go back to an earlier point, and it carried around in him a little, a little seed of in insecurity about, and a white-haired, anglophone lawyer, war veteran in the Sun Life building. Yeah, that would have intimidated a working-class man, no matter how fearless he was. And I do contrast that. He was fearless on the ice, and he could be curiously fearful in private life. Yeah, you compare him to Gordy Howe, and I think you used the word mouse-like. They shared that in common. Gordy Howe was, you know, a terror on the ice. But he too, he scuttled Ted Lindsay's efforts, even with his own, their own team. It was for Gordy Howe, you know, it was all about yes sir, no sir, yes ma'am, you know, mm. deference, 
farm prairie boy, farm boy. Now, Gordie Howe, at least, got to experience some affluence later in his career. Yeah, which I think uh, you mentioned that Richard resented to he some He did extent. resent that yeah. because, I mean, it wasn't Gordie Howe's fault. Howe, for people who don't remember, came out of retirement in his early 40s to play, play with, with Hartford. Him. That's right. Yeah. He, first he played in the WHA with his sons, and then they all played for Hartford. He was 51 when he was I'm 50, <laughs> I can't imagine. And he was still going in the corner with those elbows up, but he was, uh, in other ways, very like Maurice Richard. I even, to jump subjects, you know, my uh, Mordecai Richter once did a profile of Gordie Howe when he was with Hartford, and went down there and spent a weekend with him, and he was, I could tell, uh, uh, Richter was crushed because all uh, Gordie Howe wanted to talk about was his Amway products. He was, he was shilling Amway. Can you imagine that? Yeah, that's, it, well, in a way, that sort of tawdry attempt to make money is that, that's what Richard did too with his Grecian formula. Yeah, and his fishing lure. He made yeah. fishing tackle in his basement. Which is sad, isn't it? You, you, you don't want your icons doing that, but uh, I suppose it was ingrained in them to make money in any way they could to support their families. Well, what were they after? You know, once you retire, what are you? You're a guy who used to be Maurice Richard, sort of. Unless you have, again, that kind of patrician qualities mm. of Jean Beliveau. And, and I want to emphasize that Richard was offered and took this position with the Habs. The Habs wanted to, wanted to honor him, so they gave him one of those head office positions. And it was supposed to be a position where he understood that he could go, go golf and hang out with his friends. He wasn't actually going to do much. But he would get a salary with the Habs, and that's... Self-respect in, in retirement, I suppose, partly, right? Well, so from their perspective, that would do it. And from mm -hmm. his perspective, them making him a token executive was, was disrespectful. So he had that in him. And I mean, that, you know, that's interesting. I, pride, many men are ruled and misruled by their pride. And I think he was one of those men. But those anticlimactic, yeah, those, long, those long years where the, the famous athlete is somebody who used to be somebody famous. I don't proclaim to know how to do it right. And it is easier now because you, you, you make a lot of money. Richard never made more than 20, maybe 25000 his final year. Now, of course, you know, he, he would be making $8 million or something in his, in his twilight. So you have to mismanage pretty massively to blow all that. They do, though, by the way. Just in closing, one of the objectives of this series of Extraordinary Canadians... Well, first of all, I'll just quote uh, John Ralston Saul, the editor where he talks about every generation understanding the past differently and the fact that these biographies are centered on the meaning of each of these lives. I wonder, first of all, the, the connection between the two of you, you and Richard, and how does that color your conclusion of the meaning of his life? I include in the book an epilogue, which has nothing to do with him directly. It's just a scene from my own childhood where I'm visiting, visiting my, uh, with my family, this French town in Northern Ontario. And I have an aunt who named her sons Maurice and Richard. Yes. And, and sorry, he, he tried to yes. see them because one of them was ill. One of them was uh, ill with cancer and he, wrote, yeah. he couldn't get there. It was in Sudbury, and he, but he wrote you know, to Maurice from Maurice Richard, to Elisha from Maurice Richard. He can't send them photos of himself. It's Lovely a big gesture. deal. Very, oh, yeah. it's huge. Yeah. It's huge. Didn't, you know, the younger, my, I guess it would have been my cousin still passed away, but the, the rocket reached out, and he loved kids and all that. What I was trying to do with that epilogue, what I was doing with that epilogue, I wanted to put it at the end because I wanted the reader to know after the book was done what perspective I was taking, wh how I was coming into this story. I was telling the story from someone who has in him a lot of that same kind of tribalism 
or inherited comes from that same that same sense of inferiority, that same sense of being second class, that linguistic difference of being French speaking and minority, minority, yeah. and also believing because of my uh, many many uncles and so forth that I I had some intuitive feeling for the the character of Richard. So I wanted the book to be personal, but not evidently. So it's not told. I don't I don't come into it until mm-hmm. the very end. And an epilogue, and it's just my way of saying, look at someone. Another person would look at Richard totally differently. I'm coming in from the point of view of him as a man, him as a citizen, him as a French Canadian, his identity, everything, through the filter of my own upbringing. So I thought it was worth pointing that out, but waiting till the end. What do you consider to be the meaning of his life? Well, primarily, I mean, the meaning of his life is. He was a, a, a good father and a loyal husband and a beloved citizen. I, I think the measures are always, how do your friends and family feel about you when you go? No, no question, the narrative of his career, his public career, became essential to the narrative of Quebec. And I choose my words carefully because it wasn't his intention he was trying to do this. And as such, he's a, he's a legitimate heroic figure. Hero is not a word I use a lot, but he comported himself with enormous dignity under enormous pressure for a very long time, and that mattered to people when it did. We were talking earlier about how players are mercenaries now, they go where the money is. Maurice Richard, every time he stepped on the ice, he was acting on behalf of French Canada. felt that, and if he scored, he was doing something good. If he failed to score, as he liked to say, he had failed as a man, as a French Canadian. He was failing his people. Now he carried that around. It's quite a burden, isn't it? I think it was a yeah. huge burden, and, and I do write about. He was an anxious man. He had dreams of winding up in a wheelchair from hockey injuries. None of this was light. None of this was easy. He didn't have that effortlessness of some great athletes. He had a really strong, loving wife, didn't he? He did, and she yeah. mattered hugely, and she could talk him down a bit. But nevertheless, this was a. I don't use the words highly strong, but this was a man who who felt everything really deeply. I think the meaning of his life, first of all, is simply one of those rare intersections of sports and politics and history. But the meaning of his life is, I think, that his comportment was both heroic in and of its own and did indeed serve as a model for people, a people, who then were looking for someone who they felt was standing up for their values, their identity. And he had a great dignity, didn't he? He did. Even when he, he couldn't, he literally didn't talk. I, there are not a lot of quotes from The Rock in my book. There aren't any quotes. His brother, Henri, who I did interview for the book, I said to him, why didn't your brother, because Henri Richard showed me his first contract he signed with the Habs in 55. It was for $5,500, it was one page. It was in English. I said, did you get Maurice to help you? And Henri said, no, he didn't talk to me the first year because I was a rookie. Oh, brother. <laughs> he was a nonverbal man. so. His dignity was in his actions and in his comportment. And even since the book has come to, been published, dozens of people come up to me and say, I remember meeting him you know, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s at an old-timers game or at a benefit. And they would say he was so kind and, and warm. Didn't say anything. But they really came away with a very positive feeling. And it was that feeling of he's carrying himself with dignity and humility. And I think those are qualities that particularly here in Canada, we do like. 
Thank you for bringing Maurice Richard to life for uh, this generation and future ones and look forward to your next. Uh, are you going to be doing another biography or? If the right one comes along, I will do it. They are overwhelming, not this one, but the Mordecai Richard was overwhelming the project. So I will certainly entertain doing one again, but the circumstances have to be correct. At the moment, I'm, I'm reverting to form, which is say I'm writing a novel. Thanks very much for your time. My pleasure, Max. Charlie Forn is the author of uh, 10 books, most recently, Mordecai, The Life and Times, published by Knopf. We've been talking about Maurice Richard, one of the books in the Extraordinary Canadian series published by Penguin Canada.